Several years ago, around our first year of marriage, Christy and I took a vacation. This is back when we lived in Alabama, down to West Palm Beach. And while we were there, uh, we went to a little restaurant, a little Italian restaurant in Jupiter, Florida. And I remember we were sitting there eating. And towards the middle of our meal, the waitress came by. Some people had gotten up and left. And she came by and she said, you know, this whole time you were eating dinner or lunch across from Burt Reynolds. And I was so angry, right? Because uh, he was like 10 feet away was the bandit, okay? Some of y'all don't know what that means. But, um, and I didn't even realize that there he was. I was kind of embarrassed being from Alabama that I didn't re- recognize Burt Reynolds um, sitting across from me. But I was thinking, man, you know, that was, that was pre-Instagram, but what a great Instagram post that could have been, um, you know, a Facebook post there, me and Burt. But um, I missed that opportunity, right? Maybe you've had opportunities like that where you're just a little bit late to the game and you don't realize that who you were with or what was going on, or not even on a celebrity status, but those opportunities where you're meeting somebody and talking to them and you don't realize until a little bit later who that actually was and you're kind of embarrassed that you didn't realize at the time who you were talking to. Those awkward moments, missed opportunities, or simply just not realizing who or what's in front of you at the time. Life's kind of full of those. And in Luke 7, we're going to look at a story of when Jesus came to visit someone in his home as an invited guest, but the host doesn't really get who Jesus is. He doesn't really understand who's in front of him, yet there's going to be an uninvited guest in the home who's going to understand who Jesus is and is going to seize the opportunity. She's going to recognize Jesus as being unique from everyone else in the room, and it's really just a a story of two sinners and our Savior in the same home together, and just two totally different responses to Jesus. And as we look at this, I want you to ask this question this morning as we kind of go through this story. Who am I most like? Am I more like the host, or am I more like the woman that's in the story? Am I one whose life of worship demonstrates that I get it, or am I someone who doesn't quite seem to quite get it? Look with me at Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We're going to kind of read, and we'll stop and talk a little bit as we work our way through the story. Chapter 7, verse 36 of Luke's gospel. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Let's pause there. So here, a Pharisee has an invited Jesus to a meal. Jesus didn't just, we talk about Jesus eating with sinners. He didn't just eat with sinners. He, 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 went, he went to wherever he was invited. And this is a very religious guy, right? This is of the religious elite of that day. If anybody was supposed to be godly, it was the Pharisee. And it's very possible that Jesus had spoken in the synagogue that day as a rabbi and that he had been invited after them. That was a normal thing. But the way they're sitting, the reclining at the table, tells us that it was some type of meal, official meal like that, almost like, like a banquet. And the woman in this scene is likely an uninvited guest. She's simply observing. These types of meals, many times, a guest could just walk in and kind of lounge around up against the wall and watch and hope maybe some scraps would be tossed their way at the end of the meal and just listen to the conversation that maybe was unpacking the message that day at the synagogue. And at these times, at this particular time, this particular type of woman in the house of a Pharisee, the the whole thing is just kind of a very scandalous scene. 
And verse 37 points out that this particular woman is labeled a sinner. Now, some believe she was a prostitute. Text doesn't clearly say that, but some believe by the phrase woman of the city, that might be what it's pointing to. But to the Pharisees, a sinner was anyone that didn't obey their rules. It didn't necessarily have to be how we would define sinner. It could just be someone that didn't keep their rules the right way. But more than likely, this lady had a very morally sketchy past. Seems to be what the text wants us to understand. And she takes another key point here in the first part of the passage is this alabaster flask of ointment. You might be familiar. Every gospel has the story of a woman breaking an alabaster flask of ointment and anointing Jesus' feet with it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have that story. Matthew, Mark, and John's story, I believe, is different from this story. I believe those three accounts are telling the same story, a woman who anointed Jesus for burial, who actually the gospel of John tells us was Mary. Yet, this particular story is a different woman. She's labeled a sinner that's kind of come in, kind of an uninvited guest. And there's a different response to Jesus. It's a very similar story, but a different story. And in those other stories, we learned these alabaster flasks filled with these ointments, these, this nard, was very expensive. It could have been about a year's wages of a common laborer that, that would have had to been saved up to purchase something like that. I read where women would actually, uh, uh, would actually uh, treat these kind of like a dowry they would carry around. So her doing this is not a cheap act. This isn't some emotional whim. Uh, this is a very, very intentional, purposeful, sacrificial decision. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who, had, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now, before we get into what Jesus is going to say to him, we're learning something about the Pharisee here. Maybe he had invited Jesus to the meal just for the purpose of catching Jesus in a moment like this, right? Maybe he's already skeptical of Jesus, and this is kind of proving his thoughts true in his mind. Maybe he's just been curious about Jesus, and now he's making up his mind. But what we're learning is he is not impressed with Jesus. Not impressed at all. And his thought is this. Jesus can't be a prophet, in other words, a man who hears from God and speaks for God to people, because if he was, he would know that this woman's reputation is... And since he must not know what this woman's reputation is, he can't be a prophet. Or he does know what this woman's reputa reputation is, and he's allowing her to touch his feet and, and, to, and, to, and, to, and to, to commit this act right there, this worship act, and therefore he certainly can't be a man of God. He certainly can't be a prophet, or he wouldn't let a sinful woman even near him, much less touch him. And to this guy, this is disqualifying. But then notice it says Jesus answers him, and that's very strange. So why is it strange that Jesus answered him? Because he hasn't said anything. He never said anything. It says he thought to himself. He, he said to him he, himself, and Jesus answered him. So Jesus here is, is reading his thoughts. He knows what he's thinking. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. Now Jesus is now addressing Simon, the Pharisee. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom I, he canceled the larger debt. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus uses a, a, a little parable. 500 denarii is like a year and a half worth of wages at that time, and 50 is less than a month. And so Simon assumes the person who is forgiven the greatest amount will be the one who will love the lender the most. And it, it wasn't unusual. They, they thought of sin in terms of debt in that time. So the, the parallels here, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have missed this. And so Jesus gives the illustration and, and says, Simon, you're, you're catching on. You're right. And he says, now do you see this woman? Now what Jesus is doing, the whole time the woman's been behind Jesus. He's seated on the ground, reclining at the table. She's, she's back up against the wall, kind of going unnoticed probably, as, as, as some have pointed out, until she breaks open the flask of ointment, this perfume, and it would have begun to smell, smell up the room. People are going, what's going on? And now all of a sudden, though, Jesus is no longer looking at the host. He turns to the woman and his back's to Simon. Some even point out it's almost like an acceptance of a one and a rejection to the other. And he's going to do a comparison, right? He's going, he's going to compare Simon to this particular woman, the sinner, the Pharisee and the sinner. And he says, you gave me no water for my feet. Now, in their culture, after a journey, your feet would be filthy. And it wasn't mandatory for a host to do this, but it was not unusual. It was kind of expected in that day. It was just typical nice hospitality to offer water or to even have a servant, if you had a servant, to, to wash the feet of your guest. And so wasn't mandatory, but if you had any high opinion of the person, you certainly would have had this done. And Jesus says, you didn't offer me, you didn't even have water for me to wash my feet off with, yet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So where Simon didn't do the, even the customary, she's done the extraordinary. He says, you gave me no kiss. That was another customary, not mandatory, but typical greeting in their culture. He says, you, you haven't even offered me a kiss, a, a normal hospitable greeting like you're glad to see me, yet she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. Once again, a customary, like if you had a special guest in your home, that is something you would offer to do. But she's anointed my feet with this expensive ointment. See a pattern here. You've rejected to even do what is customary hospitality towards me, and yet she has done what is extraordinary to the point that you think she's just weird. And you think that I'm doing something sinful by allowing this to happen. And Jesus makes a radical statement. He says, the woman's sins are forgiven for she loves much. And he's making a point. Simon is unloving towards Christ. He's ho-hum towards Christ. His attitude towards Christ is critical. Because quite simply, he doesn't even see his need for his forgiveness, much less recognizing a Savior. And the woman, on the other hand, has grasped her need, obviously, for God's grace and God's forgiveness, and grasped God's forgiveness and, and taken hold of it, and this drives her to the very feet of Jesus in worship. And what we see here is there's three main characters in the story. There's Jesus, there's Simon, the Pharisee, and there's this woman. So let's just kind of talk about those three characters. So the first character is Jesus. What are we learning about Jesus here? Well, we're learning that he is he's the Son of God. And, and, and Luke's gospel is kind of building to this. The big question in the passage that you need to underline and circle when you're reading it is, who is this person? 
That's the question that's being asked by everybody in the room, and that is the question Luke is giving you the answer to by showing you that Jesus is, first of all, reading the thoughts of Simon. Imagine inviting someone to your home for dinner, and they can read your thoughts. Yeah. Weird. Well, not weird if it's God in the flesh. And so, when we're unimpressed, when we're when we don't think much of Jesus, whether we say anything or not, Jesus knows it. Jesus knows more than our a- attitude, actions towards him. Jesus knows our attitude toward him. We can fool other people with our actions, but we can't fool Jesus with our attitude. And the other thing is Jesus is showing here that he has the power and the desire to forgive sin. They're like, who can forgive sin? Well, God alone can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. This is one of a few times in the New Testament where Jesus is pointing out, I have the authority. I'm stating that I have the authority to forgive sin. And just by doing that, he's saying I'm God. It's blasphemy to say you're God unless you're God, right? And so Jesus is saying I am God in the flesh. He is claiming equality with God as the Son of God. And the important thing to note here is that he's not even just saying that I have the power to forgive sin. He is showing that he has the desire to forgive sin, and that's just important. What good is it to you if Jesus has the authority and power to forgive your sin and no desire to do it? And what good is it to you if he has the desire to forgive your sin and no power or authority to do it? You've got to have both. And Jesus in this passage we see has both the authority to forgive your sin and the desire to forgive sin. And we see here that their attitude towards Jesus is critical. One has an attitude of rejection that throws up a wall and one has an attitude of receiving and worship of Jesus and ultimately all that matters in life when it's all boiled down to is what we do with Jesus how we respond to Jesus and we largely respond one of these two ways now the second character is Simon Simon both people in the story Simon and this woman are both sinners the difference is one knows it (laughs) the other doesn't even really know it They're both sinners. Simon is the sinner who simply doesn't get it. First of all, notice he's curious but indifferent towards Jesus. He's curious. He invites him over, right? You don't invite the guy over if you're not curious. But he's really indifferent towards him in the way he responds to him. Because he doesn't really understand who he's hosting here. He thinks of Jesus as an imposter, right? And if you're hosting the real thing versus hosting an imposter, your attitude's a little different, right? I mean, Elvis is no longer with us, okay? But he's the most famous person I can think of that's famous for having impersonators. It's a difference if you had the opportunity to host an Elvis impersonator from Vegas and you had the opportunity to host Elvis Presley, right? Your, your attitude, your approach, everything about the questions you would have, everything would be different, right? Well, Simon here, in his mind, he's, he's hosting an imposter, imposter. He doesn't even think Jesus is a prophet, much less the Son of God. He's a wannabe, a copycat, it seems, according to his thoughts. But see, the truth is, if you truly understand who Jesus is, you can't be indifferent towards him. You can't can't be indifferent about deity if you believe Jesus is deity. You can't shrug at omnipotence. You can't shrug at perfect holiness. If If you can, it's because you really don't get it yet. Some things haven't clicked. 
I was, uh, I remember, I forget whose show it was, one of these late night shows I was watching one night a while back, and there might be an ongoing segment they do, but they took this Major League Baseball player, and they had him go out in the street uh, in the city, I believe, that he plays. I think it was like a New York Med or a New York Yankee or something like that, and ask people in the city what they thought about this particular baseball player. What, do you, what kind of year do you think he's having? How do you think he's doing? What do you, and ask these fans that would have like the baseball caps on and stuff, and people wouldn't recognize who they were talking to. And it was just crazy the things they would say, right? They'd be very critical, or, or sometimes they wouldn't be, but, but, and then they would realize by the end of it, they, when they figured out who it was, many times they, would, they were embarrassed because once they realized who they were talking to, they would have said things a little bit differently. You can't be indifferent when you really recognize and understand who you're dealing with in, in Jesus. It changes your response to him. People who are indifferent towards Jesus simply don't know who they're dealing with. I'm convinced churches are full of people who have a ho-hum, take-him-or-leave-him approach to Jesus because they really don't know who they're dealing with when it really comes down to it. So he's curious but indifferent. He also misunderstands Jesus altogether. Simon thinks he's got Jesus figured out. If Jesus is a prophet, then there's no way he's going to let this woman touch him. So either he must not know or he must simply be ungodly for allowing this to happen. And he's trying to put Jesus in his personal box of what he thinks a prophet or a sent one by God should be. And we have to be careful not to be like Simon because Jesus did not come to fulfill your expectations. He's not beholden to your expectations. And notice Simon also understands, he, he sees the sins of others, but he doesn't see his own sin. We gather from the story that Simon doesn't even seem to get that he's just as bad off as the woman is, apart from God's grace. His own sin seems very far from his mind, while her sin seems very heavy on his mind. And in his mind, he even thinks Jesus is sinning now. And beware of being more concerned with anyone's sin than your own. If, you can see, if we can see the sins of others clearly and not see our own sin clearly, there's a problem. It's a self-awareness problem. There are some people that want to hold up a microscope to the life of others. But they're even unwilling to look into a mirror in their own life. And if you're willing to hold up the microscope and you're not willing to look in the mirror, there's a problem. And Simon's one of those people. He wants to break out the microscope on this lady, but he's not even willing to look at the mirror and deal with his own sin. I'm reminded of a story in John 8 where some people come to Jesus and they've got this woman who's been caught in adultery and they want to stone her. Remember the story? A very famous story. And Jesus, we're told, looks, looks at these people and says, He who is without sin cast the first stone. They all drop the rocks and they walk away. And Jesus, the one person without sin, who the only person who had the right to stone her, says, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what we're learning is, if we don't see our own sin, if we don't look in the mirror, we'll be the first one to pick up the rock. Be the first one. Seeing the sins of others without seeing your own sin is a major problem. And it will change. It will affect your attitude towards the sins of others. Rather than being a loving and forgiving and compassionate person, you will be a harsh and critical and condemning person. That's Simon. And he's really ignorant of both his need for forgiveness and Christ's supply. He doesn't seem to see his personal need for forgiveness of sin or the fact that the supplier of the forgiveness is in front of him. Because when you don't think you need something, you're not really looking for it, are you? You know when I... You know when I, when I look for gas stations? When the light comes on. 
on the car. I don't really think about other than, unless I'm really thirsty or something, right? Or you, you have to make some sort of pit stop. You don't even, you just go buy them. You don't think about it until the light comes on. Then I'm like, okay, I better find a gas station, right? Whether it's a long trip or driving around town. The light has not come on for Simon. He, he, he doesn't even see a need. He, there, there's no warning light flashing in his mind. He's not looking for a savior to save him from his sin because as far as he's concerned, all is well. You know, the law is given to kind of turn on the light. To show us the warning light that we need a savior. Simon's problem is, is as a Pharisee of that day, he likely thought he was good with the law and had kept it. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's critical for the Christian faith to understand that you're a sinner. It's like step one, right? Only sinners need saviors. If you don't understand you're a sinner, you don't see your need for a savior. So Simon had yet to come to understand his need so that yet he didn't recognize that only Jesus could supply and meet that need. And then there's this woman. This forgiven sinner that Jesus says loves much. Now, the woman in the story is like literally the opposite picture of Simon. He's the host. She's an uninvited guest. He's a Pharisee. She's an outsider. He's the ultimately, ultimate religious insider. She's the ultimate religious outsider as a sinner of that day. He's indifferent and critical of Jesus. She's worshipful of Jesus. He's blind to his sin. She seems very well aware of her sin. Literally an opposite picture. And what we see here is she has a deep love for Christ that flows from a deep sense of her need and of Christ's forgiveness. In verse 47, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now verse, that verse can throw you off. False doctrines are built around that verse. Is Jesus saying this woman is forgiven because she loves him? And if so, isn't that work salvation? Isn't that something we preach against around here? <laughs> we, we preach you're saved by grace through faith alone, by God's grace alone through faith alone, and here Jesus is saying she's forgiven because she loves? Which is it? Are we saved by grace through faith, or are we saved by, by love? Well, you have to understand there are two ways to use the word for. You can use the word for as a way to tell you why something happened. And you can also use the word for to give evidence that something has happened. And Jesus is saying... Here, it's obvious that this woman has been forgiven much because her love proves it. Her love is the evidence of it. Her love for Jesus is the fruit of a forgiven heart. She's forgiven, therefore she loves. And there's a principle that's at work here in this story. The more aware we are to the truth of the gospel, that we are great sinners and that Jesus is a great Savior, the deeper and the greater, the more free you are to love Christ fully. The gospel awakens us to that. The truth is, we're all great sinners. And if you're a Christian, you have been forgiven much. And the more you understand the gospel, the more you get that. And the more you'll love Christ, the more you'll honor Christ, the more you'll desire to obey Christ. And you can be motivated to a deeper love by... You can be motivated to deeper love by the sin Christ kept you from and not just the sin Christ has forgiven you for. There are a lot of things that can motivate you to love Christ. 
There's various ways God's grace can be displayed in your life that can motivate you to, God's, to love God. And Jesus said in this particular instance, he said this woman's faith is the reason she was saved. So that kind of negates the question that we had. Is she saved because she loves? No. He says her faith is the reason she's saved. And so what we're seeing in this act that she's doing is a tangible expression of her faith, of her love. It's manifesting itself in love. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Those under the law that day thought that was, man, that was the whole deal. But only faith working through love. When we come and we receive God's grace by faith, it will begin to manifest itself in love towards Christ and towards others. And her act of worship and adoration of Christ was simply her faith on display in love. She did those things because of who she believed Jesus to be. See, her faith is being expressed in a loving act of worship and adoration of Jesus. In other words, it's what the forgiven person looks like. We get a picture here of love for Christ that is springing from a forgiven heart because every forgiven heart is a loving heart. There's no such thing as someone who has been forgiven by Christ who does not love Christ. Jesus is showing us here, if you're forgiven, you're going to love. And he says later, if you love me, you'll obey me. Forgiveness always produces love. Notice what her, what, notice what her worship, this love act of worship looks like in her life. First of all, you see humility. She's kneeling at his feet, wiping his feet with her hair. That's humbling, Right? Can you get a, a more vivid picture of humility before Christ and what this woman's doing? Is, she, is there any doubt who she sees as the really big deal in the room, her or him? Is there any doubt who she sees as greater? No, it's, it's an act of humility. She's knowledgeable of her need and his supply. Well aware of her sin and aware of Jesus' grace. But there's also reverence there. As she kisses his feet, that was an act of reverence for him. Everything about the moment, everything about this woman in this moment, she is seeing Jesus as holy and worthy of worship. There's a reverence there for who she recognizes Christ to be. And true worship is always in humility and it's always got an element of reverence to it. And there's also a picture of sacrificial generosity here. This perfume, this ointment that she breaks in this alabaster flask and anoints his feet with. We talked about it's probably nearly a year's wage her, her love for Christ led her to be willing to worship Him extravagantly, sacrificially, generously. We do this in our culture, right? When you propose, you usually there's an engagement ring involved. You go out to eat for an anniversary. You give presents at Christmas. It might be various incremental amounts, but it's, it's, the, it's the gesture, right? It's the expression. And this woman is expressing love in this way. And when we refuse to be sacrificial, to be generous towards Christ and towards his mission. It's an evidence of a lack of love in our life. She's also taking risk. There's humility, there's reverence, there's sacrificial generosity, there's a risk. What's the risk? Well, she goes into this room as an uninvited guest and it says she, and it's something we will miss because we don't think anything of it because we think, well, she had to do this to, do, to, to, to clean Jesus' feet. She lets her hair down to clean Jesus' feet. In their culture, you could be divorced for that. It was shameful for a woman to let her hair down in public. So in a room full of men and of religious leaders for her to let her hair down, not because the Bible said she couldn't do this, because their rules said she couldn't do this. 
was a very risky act. Puts her reputation on the line, puts everything on the line. There's a lot of risk involved. And deep faith in Christ and his gospel does not produce a tame love. It just doesn't. It produces a love that has literally seen the gospel spread on every, every continent. You're a part, if you're a Christian, you're a part of a faith that has missionaries that literally take the gospel to people that they know will kill them. And they do it anyway. Faith in Christ does not produce a tame love for Christ. And the same faith that led this woman to take this risk, it's just a small act to show us that and this is what faith looks like. This is what it looks like to trust in and to love Christ. She gets it. She gets it. When we have to ask the question, are, are we more like her? Are we more like Simon sometimes? Do we simply not see what all the fuss is about? I love how the story ends. Jesus tell her, tells her she's forgiven, and the crowd is completely blown away because only God can forgive sin. But the woman doesn't seem surprised. We're not given any... She never speaks a word. She just seems to get it. But notice, I love this part in verse... 48, Jesus gives her assurance that she's forgiven. He looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. But in verse 47, he's already said she's forgiven. He told Simon, her sins are forgiven. That's why she loves me so much. And in verse 48, he looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. And we tend to read this and go, okay, now she's forgiven. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, she's already forgiven. Look, she's forgiven. And then he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Why did he do that? Because hearing God say what is true about you and about what he's done for you is critical to your peace and endurance in your walk with God. After Jesus was baptized, you may recall, God the Father spoke out of heaven. This is what he said. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Who do you think that was for? The Bible says immediately from that point, Jesus was driven to the wilderness where he didn't eat for 40 days and was tempted by the devil himself. And I can imagine for 40 days in the wilderness as Jesus is all alone with the wild animals, I believe it's Mark's gospel that tells us, out in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil himself, that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, echoed in his ears for 40 days. Because what God says about you is important to your endurance. And what God says about you is important to your relationship with Him. And fighting temptation successfully. Some of you might be thinking, it'd be great to actually hear Jesus say to me out loud that I'm forgiven. I'd love to have Jesus just kind of, hey, you're forgiven for that. And that's the beauty of the Bible. Jesus has given you His Word so that you can read His Word and know that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. See, personally, I think when Jesus says you are forgiven, he's given her this word of assurance. This, he wants her to hear it and to feel it. Given her past, given the awkward stares of the crowd and the judgmental thoughts of the host whose home she's invaded in this sense, Jesus knew she needed to hear it verbally. Because it's one thing to be forgiven and it's another thing to feel forgiven. And I think this text shows us that Jesus cares about both. He wants you to be forgiven and He wants you to feel forgiven. Some of you maybe don't feel forgiven. And maybe it's because you're not. 
Sometimes you don't forgive, feel forgiven because you're not forgiven. Because there's no forgiveness apart from Christ. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ. However, some of you may not feel forgiven because you're simply not letting God speak into your life. You don't hang around long enough to hear Jesus say it. Some maybe actually need to get alone in a room with the Bible and start reading out loud. Because it's just as true as if Jesus were to say it to you eyeball to eyeball. See, your feelings are subjective. What God says is objective. And we have to constantly allow the objective truth of God's word to shape the objective feelings that we have that sometimes change day to day. Notice, you go to Ephesians and you go to Colossians, you start the first chapter of those two of the most rich books in all the New Testament. You know what Paul starts with? Here's what God says about you. You are chosen, you are holy, you are loved. And in both chapters, you are forgiven. If God thought you only needed to hear you're forgiven once, he'd have put it in there once. He didn't put it in there once, it's in there a lot. The fact that if you're in Christ, you're forgiven, is just the New Testament's riddled with those statements. Because God knows you need to hear it and you need to be reminded of it. He's given you the Lord's Supper as a believer to regularly participate in as a reminder of what Christ has done so that you can be forgiven. And maybe this morning as a believer you need to be reminded that in Christ you are forgiven. Maybe you need to take the cup and the bread this morning and remind yourself that Jesus spoke these words over your life the moment you placed your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior. And you need to let that be fuel to go and live in peace. That's what He told the woman. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go and live in peace. She needed to hear it. She needed to feel it. Let it be fuel to go and live in peace and to worship with greater humility greater reverence, greater sacrificial generosity, greater risk-taking, because knowing and sensing God's love for you and God's forgiveness for you is fuel for all those things and for your worship. So who do you relate to more in the story this morning? Simon or the, I don't like to call her the sinful woman, the forgiven woman, the woman who loved much. If it's Simon, could it be that you failed to recognize and properly to respond to Jesus in genuine faith? And if it's this forgiven, sinful woman who's been forgiven, remember the deeper the gospel of Jesus is pressed into your heart, the deeper your love for Christ. That's why we don't get over the gospel. and We continually come back to it. We grow deeper into it. If we're forgiven, we'll love. And if we love Him, we'll obey Him. It's all connected. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, let it be fuel for your walk with God that Jesus is reminding you every time you take it that you are forgiven if you're in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you need forgiveness in Christ. We obviously want to give you that opportunity. That is the most important thing. And maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you just need to spend some time reflecting and alone, confessing sin, seeking forgiveness for something that's in your life that you've just not let go of, that you need to ask your Father to forgive you. Forgiveness is yours in Christ. Let's pray.